Hello, hello, and welcome to Hot Take Think Tank. I'm Kier. And I'm Liam. And we're wishing you a happy, happy new year. Happy new year. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, I love well, a our, new year episode. Yes, it's our last episode of the year. Uh, the first year we did any Hot Take Think Tank. And uh, we're going sort of off, off the beaten trail. Uh, no article discussions today. Uh, mm-hmm. We're going to start with some uh, questions that listeners sent in. Uh, on email and Instagram, and then uh, later we've got we're going to go over some of our favorite books and movies from the year and uh, pick the official word of the year for 2023. <laughs> oh, I cannot wait! Should be fun. <laughs> Yay! Cool. What's our first listener question? All right, the first question we got was, "What are your thoughts on 15-minute cities?" Mm-hmm. So, had you heard of 15-minute cities when you read this question? I had heard about them. Um, I had heard that they were gathering a lot of suspicion among some people. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the main place I had seen them was uh, like, you know, like mass produced stickers that people buy and they just like slap them onto telephone poles, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I've been I've started seeing those around Vancouver saying like no 15 minute city or whatever. <laughs> Whoa. And uh yeah, but in my head, the only the only point of reference I had is I know that the city of Vancouver tries to have a uh, off-leash dog park within 15-minute walk of every resident. <laughs> so uh, that sounds uh, supremely evil to yes. me. <laughs> <laughs> so like that's the only two <laughs> intro points that I had to the whole idea, which seemed at odds. Uh, but I did I looked into it a bit for this question. Uh, so a 15-minute city is an urban design concept. Uh, the goal is to design a city so that most residents can do most of what they need to do within a 15-minute walk, bike ride, or trip on transit. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of having a downtown core that, and you know housing surrounding that core, uh, the idea would be a poly-core city where every residence is with 50, within 15 minutes of some sort of core uh, with mm-hmm. groceries, parks, schools, uh, whatever, whatever it is that people need. Which, that sounds like a good idea. Uh, <laughs> it does. It sounds yeah. like a, a positive. <laughs> yeah, because Vancouver, I think, really does sort of have different areas um, mm-hmm. that have like varying levels of services. Um, totally. Like a lot of the social services are kind of almost confined to the downtown east side. So mm-hmm. that sort of um, is is part of why that neighborhood has the character that it does is because yeah. you know if you need certain types of social services you, you you aren't going to find them if you live far too far from the downtown east side for example totally yeah and particularly people who can't afford uh cars and gas uh mm-hmm. yeah if it's not within a 15 you know if you don't want to spend your entire day uh riding transit for six hours or whatever so uh yeah, people, people, I think, like to live near near the things that uh, they want to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I, I made a small pros and cons list. Okay, uh, cool. And then I think you have some other cons that we'll get into. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, the big pros are less car usage, so it's more sustainable. Uh, it promotes healthy living and exercise by letting people walk places instead of driving. Uh, generally you know, improved quality of life, which is feels a bit mushy to me, but I, I see, I can see the idea of it. And, uh, it's also like an aspirational, uh, des, you know, it's a design concept. It's something that you sort of, uh, 
make policy decisions around as opposed to something that actually requires like rebuilding from the ground up. They're sort of like uh, right. steps along the way, right? Like, you know, let's try and get a grocery store within 15 minutes of everywhere. Now let's try to get a dog park, yeah. that sort of thing. It's uh, Yeah, it could sort of help you decide like where the need is greatest for a new service totally. or yeah, like what's, amenity. What's the least 15 minute city part of the city and how can <laughs> we get a bus out there or whatever it might be. Uh, yeah. But there are cons. Uh, gentrification is something mm-hmm. a lot of people worry about um, because uh, a 15 minute city is very appealing. Uh, it's likely to drive up demand and prices uh, in the areas where it's achieved, uh, which could sort of drive out low-income people who live there currently. Mm -hmm. Uh, It also involves changes uh, to how things work um, that people might vote against. Things like uh, mixed usage, uh, high-density housing, that sort of thing are are pretty necessary for 15-minute cities. It's hard to, uh, you know, if it's a 15 minute walk for single use or single family housing uh mm-hmm. then it's like you know one grocery store has to serve 20 people or whatever you need a lot more people than that to serve a grocery store <laughs> right so it is tied to density yeah totally and then uh the other kind of problem with it is just the feasibility of it um basically cities that have already been built out uh with a ton of single family housing um it's not that clear how you would sort of convert it uh reasonably to a 15 minute city um without you know substantial redevelopment and people don't generally like you know people who live in their single family homes usually don't want a a mall going in next door that sort of thing um yeah and a lot of it's you know encoded in law right that um you know zone zoning laws and uh parking requirements was another one that gets mentioned um currently you know if you want to build a, a, a big mall a lot of places say that you have to provide a certain number of parking spaces which right. uh, you wouldn't need if it's a 15 minute city and everyone's walking or biking but um the rules are the rules and they need to change uh to you know make more efficient land use yeah totally it seems to sort of like some of those cons really gesture at like larger problems with zoning, right? Like, um, especially where I am out in the suburbs, right? It's like, we've had massive issues because there's like huge, huge amounts of housing that's being built. And, (laughs) you know, are the schools and the grocery stores and the other services that people require keeping up with that, um, you know, and yeah, are people ending up needing to drive literally everywhere because (laughs) they are like in this like desert of houses (laughs) that goes on in every direction totally yeah (laughs) whereas like just my general thoughts on the 15 minute cities i think it sounds fantastic when i was looking for the place where i currently live one of my main resources was like walkscore.com i think it's called oh yeah and there you can go and you type in any address and it has like a map of all the addresses and all the grocery stores and parks and all of that and uh gives a gives a score for you know, roughly the 15 minute city idea. Like, is this uh, a place where you can live and never drive a car? Uh, yeah. And I moved to one and I really love it here. <laughs> I, th- I think a lot yeah. of people would. I bet. Like, I think about that. Like, I live, you know, a, a 15 minute drive probably in like a hmm. 30, 40 minute walk to downtown and where, where I live. And 
Um, yeah, it's just a bit further than, you know, I, I do usually drive there. Yeah. I, I can oh, walk there and I do sometimes. Um, I like to bike, but there's also a huge bike theft problem here. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, without really secure lockers, like I'm really not comfortable, like leaving my bike out. So, um, yeah, but, but totally. the services I do use are all quite close together. And if I lived closer to downtown, then mm -hmm. yeah, my driving would be way lower than it is. Or if, totally. yeah, there were more things close to me, which, <laughs> <laughs> which would yeah. be great. But Liam, here's my question for you. Uh-huh. What if the idea of the 15-minute city is actually a nefarious plan to trap people into tiny <laughs> bubbles where they are not allowed to go further than 15 minutes from their house? <laughs> Sorry, the question was, what if that? <laughs> <laughs> what if that? <laughs> that sounds bad. Exactly. I don't, that's not the case, I don't think. <laughs> Yeah. So those are like the conspiracy theories that have um, <laughs> been floating around the idea of the 15 minute city. Um, I think part of this is because the 15 minute city idea, although it's much older than this, like it really sort of gained a lot of traction hmm. right around the first half of <laughs> 2020. Um, uh, yeah when there were lockdowns uh, mm. happening due to the COVID oh. pandemic. Right, totally. So it gets mixed up with sort of the the new normal sort of thing, right? Or the exactly. you know, six feet away, the, all, all those rules. <laughs> yeah, 15 yeah. 15-minute cities, yeah, part of that somehow. It is, yeah. It really, I think, fed into people's fears that we were, like, sliding into authoritarianism and mm -hmm. that the lockdowns were just, like, we're going to be permanent, right? Like, if we didn't yeah, resist totally. them, then we'd have to live like that forever, mm -hmm. um, which would be horrifying if you believed yeah. in that, right? Oh, totally. Um, but that didn't happen. It's true. <laughs> that did not come up. to pass. <laughs> <laughs> Although I still um, sometimes see those protesters outside of City Hall. Uh, yeah, which I don't totally follow what they're up to these days, but I think they're just friends who that's what they do to hang out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's like, yeah, that there are the um, some of them call themselves, I guess, uh, anti eugenicist activists who, um, yeah. yeah, feel that uh, it's a eugenicist act that most people have stopped wearing masks and that they are no longer required at most places. Uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and it's, yeah, it's too bad because it does feel like, um, like people with uh, compromised immune systems, you know, mm -hmm. are, have always like had difficulty, you know, trying not to get sick and that is still <laughs> the case. Um, yeah, but totally. yeah, like, I think we might be talking about different protest groups though. Oh, yeah, no, I the ones I saw see outside <laughs> City Hall are like, um, they're about how the vaccine mandates are in place to keep us locked up. Like that's that's still and the, and that the vaccine Wait. like causes uh, <laughs> like heart attacks or whatever. And uh, yeah, no, they're they're like, but the vaccine mandates are they're largely yeah, over they're gone. now. Yeah, they're gone. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, I I think even confusing. healthcare professionals who like who are unvaccinated are back at work as far yeah. as I understand. I think, so. I think they need new signs cause I could not get, I, I did not follow what they were protesting exactly. But, uh, oh, that's funny. Yeah, no, they're still at it. 
<laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. I guess like the people I'm talking about were kind of hoping that they would see like a permanent cultural change in, yeah. you know, the wearing right. of masks in public and everything. Um, and yeah, different requirements and precautions. And since those have been loosened, um, they feel that, yeah, there's yeah. sort of a, a quiet, um, I don't know. Is genocide too strong a word for those people? I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I, I would say so. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I think they're using it though. That's my point. Right. Not that yes. they're accurate totally. in using it. Um, but anyways, uh, so yeah, 15 <laughs> minute cities, 15 minute cities, bringing it back around to that. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's interesting because so in like Essex County, which is in, um, Southwestern Ontario, mm-hmm. there was like a, there were something like 400 people that showed up to a city council meeting because mm-hmm. like rumors had sort of circulated that you know the council was going to be pushing through 15 minute city stuff and mm-hmm. um yeah people were very concerned and actually the meeting wasn't even about that but <laughs> that was very hard to convince uh the people that right, had showed right. up to defend their cities um and i think what's interesting about this or what's worrying about this is that mm. like it kind of sets this precedent that like all manner of green initiatives, right? Any way that you encourage walking or cycling or oh, public right. transit can all be seen as like suppressing freedom of movement, essentially, right? Um, yeah. Because you kind of have to <laughs> deprioritize cars to prioritize alternatives, yeah. right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and and that seems to be like one way that there's going to be a lot of fear mongering around any policy re- related to that, no matter mm. how benign it might be. Right, the idea that somehow it's going to be uh, like sort of non-optional, imposed on people, and uh, mm-hmm. and like very very restrictive. Like you don't get a car, and you can only go along the certified bus routes. That sort of thing. Yes, and you have uh, to eat bugs, and uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who knows what else. <laughs> yeah, they're going to take away gas stoves and mm-hmm. airplanes. It's all gone. <laughs> it's all gone. If the 15-minute cities are ever allowed to flourish. <laughs> it's a slippery slope, Liam. That's all mm-hmm. I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wild. No, it seems benign. It seems like overall a good idea, although it's not clear how it can be implemented in all, all sorts sort of, of different places. <laughs> but. The funny thing about it is I feel like usually ideas that really rile people up have more specificity than this one. Like this right. one is actually just like a design principle that's right. like, you know, let's make I let's make policy that like generally pushes in the direction of better public transit and more walkability, <laughs> which seems very, very vague to get so mad about <laughs> or it's like true. so worried about it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's how they get me, though. <laughs> exactly exactly they paint such a nice picture for you that you can't see the the true intentions <laughs> well i liam uh this is a note to the listener liam got me a, a gigantic book uh on mm-hmm. conspiracy theories um that has a, a collection of essays from all sorts of different academic fields so Stay tuned yeah. for more conspiracy <laughs> theory nerding out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it's it's coming. <laughs> it's coming. For sure. Um, yeah, so the next question we got is whether we had any culture war predictions for mm-hmm. 2024. Yeah, an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, did, what, what did you come up with? 
Well, I sort of decided to make a prediction for the right wing and the left wing. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. So I think that like there's been some interesting developments in the last year uh, in terms of uh, right wing sort of fear mongering around mm -hmm. schools, right? Around um, critical race theory, around like anything related to LGBT being taught. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's the group called uh, Moms for Liberty, which is an American conservative political organization that fights against these types of things being in schools. And right. um, they did much better in school board elections in 2022 than they did in 2023. And they actually lost mm. the majority of seats that they ran for this year, this November. Um, and I think that like, you know, and Ron DeSantis has completely fallen off the map. He had yeah. his like 15 minutes of fame. So I think that like right-wingers are not necessarily seeing like the outrage they can foment like translating into actual wins politically. Mm -hmm. um, so I wouldn't be surprised if like there's a shift in like who the scapegoat is. Like I don't think mm. uh, the the culture warriors on the right are going to like leave queer and trans people alone completely, but I wouldn't right. be surprised if we saw some reignited hostility towards immigrants or Muslims mm. Um, and I think that there's sort of a layer beneath the cultural stuff, right? Which mm -hmm. is the attack on public education, <laughs> um, right. yeah. that is like a significant goal, um, that is shared by a lot of right-wing leaders. And so, you know, whether it's because there are, you know, gender neutral bathrooms or whether mm -hmm. it's because your kid has to sit next to a Muslim kid. Like there's, um, the, the fears around like pluralistic education, hmm. I think sort of are a bit of a mask for, um, just trying to undermine and eventually defund, um, public education. Um, yeah. And so they're going to claim, and some of them probably do believe that, you know, their children are being indoctrinated yep. through these institutions. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, there's sort of a longer strategy at play underneath it. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And we're seeing like even like some universities are considering cutting their humanities departments. Some of them have announced that they're wow. cutting certain departments. Right. So mm -hmm. um, that's kind of an area where like neoliberal interests and conservative interests dovetail nicely because uh, I think that's. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Well, yeah, because I think like the biggest problem in post-secondary education is that they're turning into corporations, which have very mm. different like um, goals and priorities, right, and and ways of running things. Um, and so, I feel like yeah, the the right wing's worried about DEI, the left wing's worried like there's a lot yeah. of like you know totally. talk about like the surface. Uh, level stuff but the actual like funding issues right and like who mm -hmm. is making decisions um, is is kind of too boring for most people to talk about or care about <laughs> right but there is there is like this whole it does feel like a lot of the like controversy that happens around uh 
post-secondary institutions happens in a few faculties and not in other faculties. Mm-hmm. So it would be interesting to see uh, how the various faculties fare. Like it's mm-hmm. it's hard to find anyone outraged about like the physics department uh, mm-hmm. compared to like uh, you know obviously like gender studies or even something like history. There's like those both have way more uh, room for people to be mad about. <laughs> yeah, and, well, uh, and it's funny too because I feel like that's really where I can make a huge distinction between myself and like anti-woke right-wingers like i'm Mm. I'm no fan of gender studies departments Mm. (laughs) um but i want them to exist right like the fact that like i might not value them personally very strongly doesn't mean that they should be wiped off the face of the earth and that no one should do that type of scholarship you know (laughs) yeah no no it's like the difference between yeah being like that's not for me or that shouldn't be for anyone it's exactly. like a weird a weird desire to like control uh not just what you uh pay attention to but what anyone can pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah, and it's something that I've tried to sort of use as a bit of a guiding value. Like I got invited onto this YouTube show and I looked into it and it just felt very like the woke is ruining society, like very like uh, yeah. fear-mongering, sure. you know? And I'm like, "Listen, I don't like those guys either, but like we got bigger problems. Like it's really, you know, I never want to like make work that's contributing to making like social justice craziness seem way more important than it is and way more impactful than it is. But I think it's like if I, I, I don't feel like if you were trying to design like a really well functioning society, you would you'd want none of no, you you want like some mix of people who hold extreme opinions mm-hmm. like in in the mix with people who hold like the more moderate opinions on various things like i, I feel like the mm-hmm. the important part is having the conversation and letting both sides uh, sort of make their argument and then hoping uh you know presumably over time one side sort of dies off and loses attention and uh the other side uh carries on and becomes the new standard and then you need more people who have weird new opinions again <laughs> and the cycle yeah. sort of continues right it's like I, I i don't buy into a lot of the uh stuff on either side but um mm-hmm. I, I don't alert you know other than stuff calling for violence I, i'm not really upset that any of it exists it's it's probably for the best yeah i mean it's just one of those awkward things about supporting pluralistic democracies right like you don't have to like the people that disagree with you but you also have to let them exist (laughs) and you know largely tolerate like the decisions that they're going to make for themselves and their families um and and, and, and elections every now and then (laughs) and in elections yeah Yeah. exactly um so then for my left wing um so basically yeah in a nutshell uh, Mm -hmm. i think the right wing will continue to focus on education uh Cool. And demonizing it. But yeah, for the left wing, mm. um, I think we will continue to be consumed by the question of who is deserving and who is undeserving of help and support. Hmm. Um, I think, you know, this obsession with identity and with rank, you know, right. and that's really currently what we're using to say who is deserving and who's not deserving. Mm. Um, I won't be surprised if it grows more and more absurd, right? We're going to keep inventing new uh, identities right. Uh, right. with new claims to <laughs> oppression. Right, new sort of new ways to slice and dice groups of people into 
categories of oppressors and oppressed kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because we're not going to use like argument or evidence or reason to decide on <laughs> different issues. We're going to we have to decide who is like the most righteous. Right, um, so what if you have two black disabled trans people then how do you decide you know and then you can ask who has the pretty privilege maybe or or who has the nice privilege um uh -huh. who is who is oppressed by time blindness uh and then that can right. help you decide who's who's in charge you know totally. um <laughs> i mean i feel like that approach has to one day collapse under its own weight to the point where mm -hmm. it is replaced by something uh more more tenable but uh yeah maybe yeah, not yet for sure i definitely feel like the tide is changing a bit like it's mm -hmm. no longer like completely forbidden to you know be like uh i disagree with you um right. or i would like to see some evidence for that mm. um i think like yeah the the idea that certain people are totally unquestionable based on identity is like not as strong as it used to be um but yeah i don't think i don't think we've quite reached the end because totally. because i think what really needs to happen for the tide to change is that we need to focus on advocating for like universal programs right, right. um yeah. and that requires <laughs> that you want people you don't even like to get what they need Right. Right. Yeah. You've got to <laughs> advocate for programs that help the oppressors and the oppressed. Yeah, exactly. Is, yeah. Not not appealing to a lot of people. <laughs> Understandably no. so, I guess. But uh, yeah, interesting. I guess it's understandable. I don't know. I, I mean, it's, uh... yeah. I, 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 mean, I think understandable. it's a scarcity Probably not thing. correct. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I do feel like a lot of, a lot of things come down to being... I don't know, like the idea that it's a fixed sized pie that we have to choose mm -hmm. how to divide it up as opposed to a pie that grows every year. And how do we divide up like the new new parts of it? Yeah, yeah, totally. It's hard to like have the imagination to to be ambitious enough. Yeah. To be does, like, it, you know, it sort of connects back to the 15 minute city thing that like mm. um, the gentrification uh, uh, uh stepping into murky waters here but it's like wouldn't we prefer to somehow transition to a place where everyone lives in nice neighborhoods um mm -hmm. as opposed to like oh we have to keep that neighborhood unappealing so that the prices stay low that's just i don't right. know it's a, it's a weird sort of uh anti-growth uh mindset which uh i mean there's more more to wrestle with there obviously like you don't want to be destroying culture to uh make neighborhoods nicer but yeah it's uh, yeah totally like but like poverty is not a culture while. right oh totally yeah <laughs> like, like people suffering is not a culture so yeah, yeah you'd like to think like i have wondered if gentrification is like the best lens for understanding like these changes that happen because yeah yeah it's like you don't want to move everyone out so you can move in other people that will get services mm -hmm. you know and just shuffle those people over and over again so that they never actually benefit from like the improvements um yeah. but yeah i mean i think there's yeah decommodifying housing stock uh <laughs> oh. <laughs> might be a, a piece of the puzzle there um <laughs> but yeah. yeah could be what about you what are your predictions culture well, war wise i went um, uh, yeah the opposite way from you i went straight <laughs> to google trends 
You ever use Google Trends? No, never. It lets you see the like the overtime graph of search volume for different terms. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking, let's try and find a term that's like currently on the way up. Because that okay. seems like something that would, you know, only be bigger in 2024. <laughs> right on. What um, did you find? I found it remarkably difficult to find uh, a culture <laughs> war topic that is currently peaking. Uh, mm-hmm. Searches for woke peach, peaked in March. Mm-hmm. Uh, same for drag queen story hour. <laughs> uh, transgenderism uh, peaked mm. in April. Christian nationalism last July. Vaccine injury way back 2021. Black Lives Matter 2020. Uh, I I don't think I managed to find a single thing where the peak was December 2023. And I typed in everything i could think of <laughs> wow uh so i guess one call one one prediction could be that the culture war will be uh less in 2024 than 2023 mm. but i don't think i would make that my prediction because of the presidential election uh right and i feel like america's sort of the center of the culture war kind of stuff and uh the republican nominee is uh, a guy who loves Loves to get into all this and, and start new trends. <laughs> uh, one one thing I did find I do I do have two guesses for things that might might peak in twenty twenty four based on my Google Trends research. <laughs> uh, book bans uh, mm. last peaked in two thousand and eight. Um, uh, okay, but they they you know had sort of slumped off since then. But uh, between uh, August twenty twenty one and now. The volume has gone up by about six times. Oh wow! So they're sort of on the they're on the up and up, you know, that a very mm-hmm. a healthy a healthy shaped curve. <laughs> and I think I think that one usually peaks uh, at the start of the school year. That's sort of my guess. Um, so I, I would not be surprised if we get a new a new peak for the last decade or so uh, in 2024 for how much people are talking about book bans. Interesting. And my other one is sort of a bummer. Uh, I mean, it's all sort of bummers, isn't it? <laughs> but I, I typed in LGBTQ, mm-hmm. and that one is is going up healthily. Um, but it's hard, sort of hard to say, like, is that, you know, that's not a, a positive or a negative, right? That could just be people being like, oh, cool, I'm going to join this community. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does peak every June, um, and the year over year, the June peak gets higher. Uh, that's Pride Month. Um, yeah. And another another one, one that peaks in June every year, and the peak gets higher every year, uh, is anti-pride. Oh, so interesting. I assume that's some sort of counter-pride movement, uh, and it appears to be growing. So oh, I'm, wow. I'd be curious. I Maybe Donald Trump will get involved somehow and uh, mm-hmm. make, make 2024 the year where the culture war comes back for Pride Month. Uh, yeah, that would suck, right? <laughs> yeah, I feel like the 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 gays and days could use a break <laughs> from yeah <laughs> from being in the eye of the storm for sure. But I, be, yeah, I don't have too much great. hope for that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's yeah. I feel like it must like the the positive. <laughs> I don't know. I don't have the data. I I would <laughs> hope that the positive LGBTQ searches every June are growing at a faster pace than the anti-pride searches. Right. Um, Cause you right, can't that tell it's still, from the still search. Like a, yeah. Still a net 
growth for the positive LGBTQ representation and all that. Mm-hmm. But um, I do feel like that can be a gift and a curse in that it gives like a huge target to backlash against. Right. Like when every yeah, shop sure. window the has rainbows visibility. in it or whatever. Yeah, then it's, uh, exactly. Uh, uh, an easy target for culture warring. Uh, yeah, I feel like that's what's so sad about the culture war is that, like, you know, there's always a scapegoat. And, yeah. you know, there may be, like, a seed of, like, legitimate concern somewhere in there. But it, it sure. gets so inflamed that just so many people of blank identity just get swept mm. up in it. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah, and just targeted for very benign <laughs> reasons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's my my predictions. Book bans and anti-pride. Uh, but we'll see. I do feel like the, the election, really, I feel like you can never predict what Donald Trump's going to talk about. So uh, that's he, could, true. he could invent a whole new culture war. We'll, we'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> could be a massive curveball for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I guess we'll have to uh, assess in a year how we did yeah. on those. Oh, totally. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, so our final uh, question that we are going to discuss that we got um, was one word, and that word was Palestine, mm-hmm. um, which is not something that we have talked about yes, yet on this podcast. And yeah, so, it, it must yeah. be the biggest story of the year that we didn't touch on since since the show started. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, probably by a, by a fair fair amount. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think. Um, I think we try and like choose our topics on this show based on sort of how relevant they are to the material day-to-day life of people. And and we live in Canada, so that's, you know, people in in (laughs) around where we are. But, um, uh, and this, this one's been tough too, because there just has been such a flood of, uh, misinformation and disinformation and you know shifting um shifting stories you know uh, as we get yep. new information um but i also think it's totally fair that there was a listener who's like hey guys like where do you yeah, stand totally. on this <laughs> yeah yeah i do i do feel like the other part is like we're still both fairly new to this whole podcasting thing and the mm-hmm. idea of discussing events where tens of thousands of people have died Mm-hmm. Uh, just feels a bit a bit more high stakes um, than what we normally talk about, right? Usually it has mm-hmm. sort of a jokey tone, and we're discussing, you know, housing policy, and and sometimes we get more serious. But uh, this, yeah, it feels very very weighty for our show. Yeah, for sure. And I think the other thing is, like, I really did want to th- think about what I could try and offer that's somewhat unique, right? Because. There's yeah. plenty of podcasters talking about <laughs> Palestine. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. So it, I, I think uh, I'm I'm glad that, that this person asked the question because it gave me a yeah. chance to be like, all right, like, yeah, do I have anything um, that might be useful to, to contribute? So um, I think, yeah, I'll just start by uh, saying, I guess, where I've landed or what my position is on this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, the Hamas attack on October 7th was absolutely horrific. Uh, and my heart goes out to people who lost loved ones on that day. Um, the Israeli bombardment that has killed 21 
thousand Palestinians so far is absolutely an unjustifiable horror. Um, I don't support Hamas, although I do agree with the United Nations Secretary General uh, Antonio Guterres when he said that their attack did not happen in a vacuum. And uh, I believe that until Palestinians are no longer subjugated by a hostile ethnostate, violence will continue to erupt. So that's that's the short version of, of where I'm coming from. Yeah, yeah, and I, I would I'd sign on to, to everything you've you've said there. Um it's uh it's an area with a lot of history that I feel uh sort of underqualified to you know, I I have a book on my bookshelf I haven't I haven't read yet, uh, but I hope to to sort of to familiarize myself more with it. But um sort of uh, looking for like a solid foundation to build an opinion on, uh, I often fall back to documents from the United Nations. Um, they're not perfect, but I like them as sort of a, a baseline just because uh, they're, they're often, you know, they've been signed on to by a huge number of governments representing a, a huge amount of the population of the earth. And uh, so I, I find them to be uh, often very well thought thought through. Uh, and the Geneva Conventions would be the ones most applicable to this situation, the ones that sort of govern the rules of war. Um, obviously, the preference would be no war, <laughs> mm -hmm. but um, when when there are wars, these conventions are the ones that sort of try and outlaw truly, truly horrendous acts. Um, and and they include a lot of things that uh, have happened um, in Israel and Palestine since October 7th, massacre of civilians, hostage taking, uh, failing to distinguish your military from your civilians, indiscriminate attacks and bombings, destruction of religious sites, violations of medical neutrality, executing surrendered people. Um, yeah, so I, I feel mm -hmm. uh, confident, uh, <laughs> confident, you know, denouncing actions of both Hamas and the IDF. And mm -hmm. and with the caveat that uh, the IDF doesn't represent uh, all of Israel or all Jewish people, and and the same uh, Hamas not representing all Muslims or everyone who lives in Palestine. Mm -hmm. um, and I do I I feel like a lot of people, um, I don't know a lot of people, <laughs> the idea of, of rules of war I think are seem seem sort of strange because it's war right it's it's people killing each other. Um, but I do think it's, uh, despite a lot of differences, a, a worthy comparison to the war in Ukraine. Um, you know, having been uh, invaded by Russia almost two years ago now, and Ukraine has um, not committed war crimes um, while defending itself. Obviously, they've killed many Russian soldiers, but that's allowed by the rules of war. Um, and they, when soldiers surrender, they take them into prisoner of war camps where they're you know fed and clothed and and sheltered um mm -hmm. so it's uh there isn't sort of a any logic to the idea that you know if war crimes are committed to you you have to do them in response right right you, you can you can have a military and you can defend yourself uh without you know without crossing these pretty basic lines uh mm -hmm. and and they've been thor thoroughly crossed here um Let's, and yeah, I assume but, that Russia has committed war crimes. Yes, yeah, they have. Uh, mm -hmm. 
uh, plenty. There's yeah. I in in looking this up, I did find there was a, a Wikipedia page for the war crimes in both in both of these uh, conflicts, and the yeah the one for the Israel Hamas one uh, is yeah has both of them in the title right war crimes committed by these two groups and uh the one for the war in ukraine only russia uh ukraine mm. has, has a very clean clean record um but i mean yeah because <laughs> for a lot of reasons <laughs> but uh yeah the un's human rights council announced uh with regards to israel and hamas that it has clear evidence of war crimes being committed by both sides and uh mm-hmm. from what i've read it, it does seem like at this point the you know, obviously no war crimes is the goal, and second to that, fewer war crimes is preferable to more war crimes, and, and just looking at the uh, civilian casualty numbers, um, mm-hmm. there are there are a lot um, at the hands of the IDF. Yes. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's uh, I, I would find it pretty much impossible to support either force uh, in this fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um so I think, to my memory, the first time I went to a Palestine Solidarity rally was in 2010 in Ottawa. Mm. And um, so this is something I've uh, been following for quite a while. Definitely no expert whatsoever. <laughs> um, but there is something that I have changed my mind on over the years. Um, mm. I used to believe that this conflict could be understood through a lens of settler colonialism, right? Mm. Um, Right. That uh, Israel is made up of colonizing Europeans who have pushed the indigenous Mm. population off of their land um, and settled in that place. Right. And, um, I'm going to deconstruct that in a bunch of ways in a minute here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But I'll start with the term settler. So for the first time ever when this conflict happened, I was seeing people refer to Israeli civilians who died, Mm. who who were killed on October 7th or who were kidnapped on October 7th as settlers. And... Mm. For the first time, I was alarmed. <laughs> that was not right. necessarily the first time I've heard something like that. Um, but the reason I was alarmed is because I really felt that the reason that settler was being used was to dehumanize the Israeli settler, or sorry, the Israeli right. civilians, and right. to kind of say that every single Israeli is responsible for the actions of their government. Right? No one mm-hmm. is innocent, and I really have a strong opposition to that now. Um, I, first of all, oppose it because all civilians are fundamentally innocent. Mm -hmm. Dehumanizing groups of people is always a mistake. (laughs) Um, And we should be very careful not to conflate the actions of a government with the people living under that government. Um, So that's, that's one massive reason I I disagree with using that term. The other reason is because of the fact that we cannot describe this as a simple, like, settler colonial process. Mm. Um, 
so I can, first of all, I can see why the narrative is tempting, right? Because there is a massive power differential between the Israeli state and the Israeli military and the Palestinian people, right? So Mm -hmm. you can look at it and see, oh yeah, it's like, you know, David and Goliath, we've got the righteous underdog, the evil overlord, um, you know, that's, that's settler colonialism, right? Um, but the thing is, is like, neither the Zionist narrative nor the settler colonial narrative stand up to scrutiny. They both have like a, a different racial mythology that just is not reflective of reality. And that's what I wanted to talk about. Hmm. So there was a 2000 study that was published in the Human Genetics Journal that demonstrated that at least paternally, Jews and Palestinians are related to each other and share recent ancestry. Hmm. So some... Um, Some pieces of this, for example, is that within the Israeli population, 35 to 40% are Mizrahim, which refers to Jews of Middle Eastern and North African descent. Hmm. And another 20% of the Israeli population are Palestinian Israelis. So if you put those two groups together, they actually make up the majority of the Israeli population at between 55 and 60%. Right, which so, is hu- hugely different mm-hmm. from like the standard idea of settlers, uh, like coming from Europe to North America. That I think you would mm-hmm. not find any. You know, you'd have to go back twenty thousand years or something to find sort of the shared, shared an- ancestry uh, in that case. Whereas exactly. here it sounds like it's uh, uh, very recent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it it is recent, right? So you know, to talk about it in like clunky. North American social justice terms, like Mm. at least 55 to 60% of the population are quote unquote people of color. Right. Right. So what does this Hmm. complicate? Well, (laughs) first of all, um, the the Palestinian sort of activist framing of, you know, Israelis being European colonizers who are not indigenous to the area doesn't hold Mm. up. Um, it is true that many Palestinians were forcibly removed from their land and that European Jewish people were involved in the founding of Israel, but it's a massive oversimplification to call Israelis all white settlers, given the 55 to 60% of the population that is indigenous (laughs) to, you know, indigenous Jewish or indigenous Palestinian, um, to, to the land, um, the Israeli or Zionist mythology also doesn't hold up, right? Because that hmm. story is that the desert was empty when the Zionists arrived right. and that mu- Muslims later flocked en masse from other regions because of Israel's success and that Palestinians are not indigenous to the land. That also doesn't add up when you look at the shared genetic ancestry and the makeup of the population, right? Yeah. Now, if genetics or demographic information was enough to solve the conflict, it would have been (laughs) solved by now. Um, Mm -hmm. But I still think that it's really important to challenge the racial mythologies at play because neither of them accurately reflect the demographic history of the region. One other thing to clarify or maybe confuse further um, is that there are... Um, like settler in 
Israel means something specific being um, sort of there's the agreed upon land boundaries between Israel and Palestine. And I think under under the current current prime minister, largely, I, I'm not entirely sure when it, when it started, but I think there's about 100,000 um, uh, Israelis who live on legally Palestinian land. Right. Um, sort of, I think, uh, um, in part as an attempt to uh, prevent sort of a two-state solution from coming together because you'd think you'd just uh, solidify the lines as they were last agreed upon. But mm-hmm. this form of settlement uh, is sort of designed to blur those lines and uh, and sort of move, move the front of of the Israeli state. So uh, mm-hmm. so that that is settling. <laughs> but uh, right. th- those I'm settlers... really glad you brought that up. Yeah, those, <laughs> those... that is literally those are settlers doing that, yes. and that um, is illegal. <laughs> yes, and, <laughs> and should and... not be done. <laughs> <laughs> right, but those were not the people um, largely who died on October seventh. So the idea that it was uh, settlers being killed uh, doesn't doesn't hold up to that definition. No, and I think you know I think what you're saying actually shows even more how important it is to be specific with the term <laughs> settler, right? That right. Yeah. the majority of Israelis are not in these illegal settlements that are infringing on Palestinian territory. Those people, totally. those are settlers. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So and, thank and you. Being able to to tell the two apart, uh, yeah, they they probably deserve uh, different. Um, you know, different, Scrutiny, different reactions. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for sure. Um, obviously, no war crimes. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, sure. Yeah. My my one last thing I wanted to mention was just um, sort of a, a clearer policy thing, uh, which is mostly just uh, something I didn't realize was the, the current policy, and it seems absurd. Um, that uh, U.S. aid to Israel uh, comes with no conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's sort of no no text uh, written out that says, uh, you know, this aid is to be used for blank, um, and if it's misused, there will not be further aid. Um, and it's currently being pretty widely debated whether or not to add that language, and it seems like a, a natural thing to do uh, if you are mm-hmm. supplying weapons to people who the United Nations thinks are committing war crimes with those supplies. Uh you should say, uh, don't use these supplies to do war crimes. And if you do, um, we're not going to give you any more supplies because we don't uh, support states that uh, do war crimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that goes the right way. It seems like it it might. I think Biden is currently opposed to it. He likes his like behind closed doors diplomacy. Um, <laughs> but But we'll see. Biden's like we're doing everything we can to <laughs> stop the war. Uh, the machine guns are coming tomorrow. <laughs> like it's yeah, it's it's yeah. Get, I no. mean, I think one one thing that has riled up a lot of people is again those uh, literal settlers uh, mm-hmm. appear to be receiving some of the weapons. Um, yeah, and like so, it's it's not even staying within the military. It's going to uh, angry civilians, which. Uh, it's very very worrying. That shouldn't happen. Um, no, that's <laughs> and awful. and the states is sort of the the government that has the power to apply a lot of pressure to change things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I hope I hope they do. I don't know the minimum and include some conditions. 
Yeah, agreed. And, you know, in the U.S., along with in many other parts in the world, we are actually seeing probably the most public support for the end to Palestinian subjugation um, that we've seen before, um, even if it is quite mismatched by government policy and uh, mainstream coverage. You know, you wonder and you hope that at a certain point... The, that Biden will be unable yeah. to ignore the majority of yeah. his population. Yeah. <laughs> his poll numbers are not not doing so hot these days. <laughs> so he, he could probably win over some some young folks uh, yeah. with a with a few changes here. Mm-hmm. All right, we we did it. We made it through. <laughs> <laughs> Shall right we move on. on to our our year in review? Let's do it. Yeah, uh, I think you've got books. I've got movies, and then uh, word of the year. Mm-hmm. Sounds Sweet. good. Yeah. So um, I did a blog post uh, over at Cure here. I'll link below um, that. Yeah. Lays out my favorite 10 books that I read this year. Um, so if you want to see all of them, check that out. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm just going to highlight three here. And I decided to pick uh, fiction and nonfiction and a sort of instructive book. Um, Yeah, so I'll start with uh, Galileo's Middle Finger by Alice Drager. Um, Great title, Alice, thank you. (laughs) Gift to the world. Um, Yeah, so this book is uh, basically about the tension that can arise between scientists and researchers uh, and people pushing for social change, right? Mm. Yeah. there are times where these are nicely aligned mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and people work together. And then there's times where, you know, the research does not match up very easily with the, the, the policies that people are pushing for and things can get really heated and controversial. Um, what's interesting about Alice is that she's been on both sides of this. Um, mm. She was an early intersex advocate Um, and she's not intersex herself, but basically she was producing research on sort of the historical treatment of people who have intersex conditions. And, um, these activists noticed her work and basically convinced her to get involved, uh, pushing basically Mm. for more humane treatment of people with intersex conditions, um, because it's been um, very common, basically, to, like, try and reshape infants' genitals, um, which, right. you know, to make them look more, you know, this gender or that gender. But that can, you know, obviously result in pain, complications, lack of sexual function. And mm. it's a literal baby, so they can't tell you, you know, what they would or would not like done um, and parents usually feel a lot of pressure to normalize the child, right? right. Um, so anyways, Alice Drager uh, worked, you know, kind of from her position in the academy um, to, yeah, to try and educate um, new doctors and raise the public awareness uh, around this issue and improve treatment. And there have been significant improvements in that area. So, um, you know, she at that point was like pushing against a lot of like um, sort of the old fashioned ways of teaching um, Hmm. in in medical schools. Right. 
um, you know, and trying to produce research that could persuade and convince people to change how they were doing things, right. change right. how Adopt they were teaching the doctors. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, but then, like, later, <laughs> she found <laughs> herself um, on the other end. She found herself accused mm. of creating sort of anti-progress uh, research, right? Interesting. Yes, it's very interesting. Um, so she's just really, she kind of went down the rabbit hole when that happened to really mm. try and understand, like, how do we handle these these tensions when they arise? And mm. um, I don't want to go on for too long about this book. I just really want to encourage people to read it. And and I think for me, it was such a page turner, right? Like Interesting. It's Could not I ask a thriller, just but mm-hmm. when when she's been accused of being against progress, is that still work in her sort of uh, gender or sex uh, assignment sort of area? Is that sort of that's what I'm guessing? Or well, um, basically, <laughs> what it was is that this uh, book was published by hmm. sort of a sex uh, scientist, if you will. Um, Mm -hmm. That was very controversial and um, it included, um, what's the term I'm looking for? Oh, the the idea of uh, autogynophilia, um, which is like a very uh, controversial way of (laughs) understanding transgenderism. Hmm. So basically there was like this really brutal campaign against this scientist um Hmm. perpetrated by activists which included a lot of just like lying about what he had said and lying about Uh, what he had done you know and so rather than you know trying to confront him like to disagree with him or to debate him they Hmm. just tried to like ruin his character and they did a pretty good job of it um Hmm. so alice drager basically went in and researched like looked at every single document talked to everyone she could to try and understand that controversy And because she pointed out all the places where these activists had lied (laughs) or made Uh, stuff up about this guy. It was taken as like an endorsement of everything he'd said sort of thing. Exactly, exactly. Hmm. So, so that's sort of yeah. When she found yeah. herself in uh, in hot water, yeah, <laughs> it's super interesting, you know. And from there, she goes and looks at all these other controversies and these other professors that are hmm. sort mm-hmm. of um, have been become like no one, right? Like people that you wouldn't invite uh, to talk because. Um, they're they're tarnished by the accusations that have been made against them, whether or not those mm-hmm. accusations uh, have any merit. So uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's Galileo's middle finger, and uh, yeah, I really cool. recommend it. Um, the second book I'll mention um, is mm, yeah. It, maybe it would work if we switch back and forth, like book oh, movie, sure. book movie. Just thinking, so you don't have to monologue too much. Drink some water if you want, (laughs) (laughs) and same for me. (laughs) Give me a movie. Okay, Okay. Uh, so the first movie I want to mention is called Anatomy of a Fall, uh, directed by Justine Triette. Uh, It's a French courtroom drama. Um, The basic setup is uh, a mom, dad, and kid live together in a cabin in France. Maybe not France. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Europe somewhere. 
the uh, parents start getting into a bit of an argument. The kid goes to walk the dog, and when he gets back, he finds his father uh, dead on the ground outside, seeming to have fallen from the second-story window. Hmm. Um, and uh, the the plot of the movie revolves around mostly the, the court case, uh, the state trying to argue that uh, the, the wife uh, pushed him, and and her defense obviously being that he he must have jumped, hmm. and uh, it's a, a fantastic movie. It's in English. Um, I think the idea is that one of them was uh, German and one of them was French. Maybe it was Swiss, um, but so they speak English. That was their common language, mm-hmm. um, and it's just this fascinating movie about um, looking into sort of the the specifics of the crime and the vagueness of of being a human uh there's mm. sort of not enough physical evidence to to sway the jury one way or another so it sort of comes down to you know how did you treat your husband how how was your marriage um hey. and you know they're humans so there there were fights and there people who are mean to each other and and they they hold grudges um and it all all gets laid out in this sort of um you know this wild level of of dissection right like getting into mm-hmm. the most most painful parts of of the relationship and and trying to decide based on you know how how she acted in various situations whether or not she killed him yeah. uh, so it's a it's a fantastic just you know a, a lot of movies i i think the best movies often get at things that literally cannot be put into words. There's something about, mm. you know, movies and being able to watch the actors' faces and that sort of thing. Uh, and this this movie did a great a great job of that, of just um, really really showing uh, what what humans can be like and and what one one human in particular was like. Uh, so yeah, wow. just just fantastic. I really loved it. Uh, it also has the best dog acting you'll ever see. <laughs> what? And <laughs> yeah, I, it's wild. It's like I, I used Letterboxd, and I swear, like a third of the reviews on there are uh, people being like, "That dog, they have to invent like dog Oscars now, right? Because that dog needs an Oscar." Um, yeah, and uh, and it made me cry, like almost every movie i love uh does at one point or another uh yeah just very very yeah fascinating very, very sl- slow and long so um you got to put your phone away for it for sure <laughs> it, might, it might not keep your attention but but if you're willing to sort of spend your attention on it uh i think it's a very rewarding movie to watch hmm. anatomy of a fall anatomy of a fall that sounds great. Yeah, that's one thing that I love about like uh, true crime or like crime mm. documentaries. I guess those are the same thing. But anyways, <laughs> um, just the the ambiguity of human behavior, right? If you if yeah. you do not have the smoking gun, then it really does come down to like your personality and and the totally. analysis of yeah how you acted in certain situations, yeah. right? Totally. Yeah, and in this case, both the does she seem like the kind of person who might kill someone and does he seem like the kind of person who might kill himself right right it's like the, the two sides that's the two options we don't know for sure we just got to look at them and, and and see what we can find yeah uh, wow yeah yeah that it's great. great i recommend it <laughs> <laughs> 
Right on. Uh, well, my fiction uh, recommendation for the year is Pure Color by Sheila Hetty. Um, Hetty, I believe, is a Toronto-born uh, um, writer, which I love. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, Pure Color is a novel that is unlike anything that I've read before. It is really epic in scope. Like it starts off by creating a creation myth. Um, hmm. <laughs> and uh, then it zooms in on this one woman's life and it tells the story of her life from the very beginning to the very end. And um, I just found myself like in such awe while reading it like it it was um something about it felt so resonant you know like it, it mm. really it was like there was a life that was being described in the book a real person i could imagine her right. um and she reminded me of moments or of people in my life mm. um and yeah, I just appreciated, like, I, I feel like so much fiction, uh, contemporary fiction sort of zooms in so tight on things and also tries to be really objective, right? Like, mm-hmm. th- that's sort of a thing that's been taught right. in, like, uh, American uh, writing workshops for a long time is, like, show, don't tell. You need to name the different objects and how people interact with the objects. And then the reader gets to decide for themselves, like what the drive of those characters are based on their actions, you know? Hmm. And this book just really like does not do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, In a way that I found just like, just like quenched my thirst. Um, So yeah, I think if you're, looking for something just sort of whimsical and profound um pure color by sheila hetty is the way to go cool Hmm. well uh i'll hop into my next movie i guess yeah yeah okay um my next pick uh is spider-man across the spider-verse Ooh. Uh, it's uh the sequel to spider-man into the spider-verse which um I feel like I want to place this one in the, like a bit of the context of animated movies. It's a it's a cartoon about Spider Man, <laughs> but um yeah the the fascinating like bit of history that I I think it's um a part of is uh way way back like the cartoons in like the fifties and sixties were like real wacky um with this uh, animation the idea of the animation wasn't sort of to look real or to, to represent the world accurately. It was, a, a, it played a lot more with the idea of visuals, right? Because it's just drawn mm. and you can draw anything you want. So there's no sort of rule that you have to follow the rules of physics. <laughs> right. Um, so they're, they're wacky, you know, you, you coyote running off the cliff and then hanging in the air for a minute or whatever, <laughs> and then falling that sort of thing or painting the hole on the, on the wall and then running through the hole. Um, just zany stuff back in the day and then sort of with with pixar spearheading it i guess with uh, movies like toy story um the the mainstream of animation moved towards this uh pursuit of realism that the goal was to accurately recreate the real world um 
whether that's, you know, recreating fur in Monsters, Inc. or, or you know, recreating snow in Frozen. <laughs> the mm -hmm. big animation studio is very much focused on, like, how can we render uh, these different materials accurately and, you know, get the, the right look of the eye and all that sort of thing. Um, and that was the, the sort of dominant take on animation until Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse came out a few years ago hmm. um, with this incredibly, like, fresh take um, uh, drawing a lot of inspiration from comic books and and blending 2 and 3D in a way that uh, was unfamiliar and, and using some old school techniques like um, they, they um, <laughs> to get a little nerdy with it the, the idea of a lot of animation these days is, is you come up with keyframes uh, where you draw like a character in one pose and then their next pose and then the computer figures out how they moved from one to the other and fills in the frames in between Mm -hmm. uh, the Spider-Man Spider-Verse movies uh, do not use any of those in the middle frames that are come up with by the computer. Oh, uh, wow. It's a bit, uh, it takes, when I first watched the first one, it was a bit of uh, an adjustment just to like, there's a bit more jitter to it. There's, yeah, something, something different, but they, but they use these uh, various techniques to uh, tell a great story and to really, um, yeah, just to, to great effect, to like to, to create beautiful imagery. And um, and it also tied into the story because across the Spider-Verse and into the Spider-Verse, it's about the various worlds that Spider-Man exists in interacting. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So like there's uh, our main man, Miles Morales. He has his one art style. Then there's like an anime Spider-Man who comes in with that art style. And there's like the old school Spider-Man who comes in in black and white. Um, Anyway, this is a long way to say that movie was great, and I was very excited for the sequel. And uh, then the sequel finally came out, and I sort of expected it to be at the same level of animation. But uh, they spent many, many years on it so that it could once again make a giant leap forward and be just oh, the wow. coolest-looking animated movie I have seen in a very, very long time. Just, like, really, you know, uh, throwing realism to the wind and letting the environment and the character art um sort of you know more more like how a soundtrack might swell and ebb with the emotions you're supposed to be feeling the the arts like down to the the backgrounds really uh um is done with with an eye to telling the story more so than this is what her room looked like <laughs> so right. uh, yeah it's it's a totally. great great movie the only real knock against it is that it's part of a series um so it's not I don't know. I like a self-contained movie <laughs> with like a beginning, middle and end. And this whole movie, it's it's a planned trilogy. So this whole movie sort of a middle. But it does still, it sort of shifts focus to, to care about a different character. And uh, yeah, just a lot of fun. Lots of, lots of good jokes. Lots of action. And, uh, and I, you know, thank it for making animated movies look cool again. <laughs> I, think, I think all the other studios will sort of be uh, working to uh, also start looking cool again. So that's my second movie. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's um, it's always so refreshing when someone sort of breaks the mold of like what yeah. everyone's doing right now, right? And if totally. it's like, okay, yeah, we've been working on realism for like decades now, <laughs> we've got that down. Well, then what is the next, you know, leap, right? Um, totally. And yeah, there there can be really powerful things to be said for for drawing on on simpler or older ways of doing things yeah totally and and like augmented with a bunch of new 
technology. Like, um, right. it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a wild, <laughs> a wild production <laughs> and, <laughs> and very good movies. It would be one, it would be a very cool tech demo, but they do manage to have an emotional hook in it as well. <laughs> uh, this one also did make me cry just to be clear. And I didn't cry at how beautiful the images were. I cried about the story. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Man, I don't think I cried in any of my books. Um, Gotta get have on to my read level. them again. <laughs> <laughs> or watch movies. <laughs> yeah, I feel yeah, like I don't true. cry at books as much either. It's hard to, yeah, I, I have teared up a couple times mm. this year, but yeah, they don't get me the way movies can. Mm. Um, yeah, so my final book suggestion is sort of a practical one. Uh, it's called mm-hmm. How to Take Smart Notes by Zonka mm. Ahrens. Um, and yeah, basically he explains this system called Zettelkasten, which is a German word. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a method for basically creating um, a database of notes for, and it can be used, you know, for uh, students can use it, academics, mm-hmm. or just like nonfiction thinkers, autodidacts. But the point is, is that this, you know, a collection of notes becomes more and more useful to you over time. Um, and that it sort of fills a gap in a lot of people's writing processes, uh, Mm. where, you know, maybe we read a lot, but, you know, we like underline things and never go back to them or we write down quotes, but we can't remember what we thought of them. Um, Mm. And Ahrens is a, an educational researcher, among other things. And so he really explains, like, why the various steps of the method reinforce your learning and also really push you to um, create insight, basically, by, by mm. connecting things that may not have an obvious connection at first, right? Um, so... I'm giving the method a shot this year. Another thing to check mm-hmm. in on in a year. Yeah, totally. Um, if it sticks yeah. enough. <laughs> yeah, to see if it sticks. Um, yeah. It's been maybe, really Maybe you'll cool become so only more cogent and have even clearer <laughs> thoughts a year from now on the podcast. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I hope so. I could I could use it. Uh, no, I just, there's always room for improvement, you know. Oh, and, totally. um, yeah. Which is not, don't get me wrong, I'm not like a... <laughs> sort of uh healing journey grinder type of person. Uh, right yeah optimize not everything. the app grinder but <laughs> yeah yeah i'm not really into self-optimization but i am mm. into being like okay i'm a writer i could be better at this how do i get better at this <laughs> oh, totally. um yeah that seems that seems worth doing so um yeah so we'll see we'll see how that goes cool yeah I, I'm, I'm very curious about how that one works out for you mm-hmm. uh it's something that i i might give a try but Let's see if it sticks for you first. <laughs> Fair enough. Cool. So uh, my last last movie recommendation uh, is Godzilla Minus One. Uh, the latest Japanese Godzilla movie. Uh, and it made me cry. We can start with that. <laughs> Which is quite something for, for a Godzilla movie because right. um, it's uh, about a big monster smashing things. But um, all, all of the Godzilla movies have sort of tried to incorporate like a human scale story uh, to go along with the monster smashing. Uh, and this one, I think, of all of them that I've seen, does does far and away the best job of that sort of making a, a characters that you care about beyond 
whether or not they get attacked by a giant lizard. Um, <laughs> and, of course, the giant lizard looks great. Super, super good-looking Godzilla design. Uh, horrifying sequences of him destroying the town. Uh, and and it also does... Uh, it... Um, I mean, the original Godzilla movie is also a masterpiece uh, and was made immediately or pr- pretty shortly after World War II um, when when Japan was uh, grappling with a lot of things, um, you know, trying to, to figure out how, how they thought of their own history. Um, and uh, this one... Uh, takes place immediately post World War II, which a lot, a lot of Godzilla movies since haven't, but this one, this one does. Uh, that's where the title comes from. Actually, the minus one is sort of the idea that Japan was at one, and the war brought it to zero, and then Godzilla brings it to negative one. Oh no! Uh, sort of the, that it was uh, already a very rough time in in Japan, and then they got a Godzilla to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it's got a um. And a trope that always always gets me is the found family uh, sort of trope, where people who uh, don't have a family, in this case because of, of the war, uh, sort of find each other and, and find a way to make a family. Um, and it also was fascinating uh, as, as a piece, uh, a, a, a pair with the original Godzilla movie. Um, to do a slight spoiler for a 70-year-old movie, <laughs> uh, that one ends with sort of a heroic sacrifice. Um, and in this one, the protagonist is a kamikaze pilot who abandoned his mission, uh, so didn't didn't sacrifice himself, um, mm. and is is haunted by that sort of, you know, living in a post-war Japan as a soldier who didn't do all he could to win the war. Um, right. Uh, is... Uh, something he, he wrestles with throughout the movie, um, and it's, I don't know, just a just a fascinating, um, yeah. I mean, um, for for it to sort of, I don't know, almost makes me think of like philosophers building on each other's work, right? Like coming up with this idea, this way of looking at it, that way of looking at it, and then you know the the next philosopher coming along and trying to um, look at the same the same sort of set of facts and and uh draw their own conclusions sort of mm-hmm. uh and it is very tied to the first one like it, it reuses a lot of the score uh which is very fun as a big fan of the first godzilla movie mm-hmm. uh yeah and and i was just absolutely sort of putty in this movie's hands by the end of it uh <laughs> it like it does not shy away from playing for the big emotional moments and like it absolutely cast a spell and uh you know every everything absolutely hit for me Wow! Uh, just yeah devastated at parts overjoyed at other parts uh and you know just felt like okay i'm you know exactly on the wavelength that i'm supposed to be (laughs) which uh you know it's it's you never know going into a movie if it's going to do that for you um but this one did for me and might for you as well and uh yeah and and well worth it worth it if it does uh yeah yeah that's neat too because it's a reminder that like sequels or remakes or spin-offs mm-hmm. or whatever can be really good if they like add to the yeah. lore of the world right totally yeah mm-hmm. and and just like and if they um you know they're they're <laughs> so many so many sequels and remakes um feel like they are created out of 
um, intellectual property law where it's like a company that's mm-hmm. like, well, we technically own the rights to this, so we should make a movie. Um, whereas this one very much feels like uh, um, someone poured their heart and soul into it. Uh, many people, I guess. Uh, mm. Which is great. And uh, the other thing uh, everyone thought of with this movie is that it would make a very good double feature with Oppenheimer. Uh, oh, another another movie about the dawn of the nuclear age um, yeah. from the other side. And uh, yeah, uh, I just, it's just sort of an, an interesting coincidence, I guess, that they both came out the same year. Um, and a lot of people were, were upset, I guess, with Oppenheimer not showing the Japanese side of things, uh, which I think is sort of silly. Um, but if you'd like a movie that maybe gets into the Japanese side of things a bit more, uh, Godzilla Minus One uh, from, a, from you know, written and directed and starring <laughs> and in the language of uh, Japan. So uh, That's yeah. very cool. Right highly, on. highly recommend. That one's still <laughs> in theaters if you're lucky. So uh, go and see it. Big, loud soundtrack. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> lots of rumbles and uh, roars and whatnot. <laughs> Excellent. Get the full yeah. experience. <laughs> totally. It's a good one. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Liam, I think you uh, compiled a list of <laughs> right. words of the year for us. Yes. I, I A lot of publications put out their word of the year at the end of the year. And uh, those are all submissions to Hot Take Think Tank to name the definitive year of the year. A lot exactly. of people don't know that. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we've got five, five words here okay. uh, from only the most re- re- reputable reputable uh publications <laughs> and uh we right here and now everyone gets gets to witness it we are choosing the official year <laughs> not the year the official <laughs> word of the year 2023 mm-hmm. ready to hear our contestants yes let's do you do want it. them all at once or one by one let's first do all at once and then we'll all get right. through them <laughs> okay the words are riz <laughs> authentic okay. mm-hmm. ai mm-hmm. hallucinate okay and cozy lives uh-oh <laughs> how do you spell cozy lives uh cozy live was chosen by the macquarie dictionary in australia <laughs> okay and it is australian slang for cost of living oh cozy lives cozy lives Okay. Uh, C-O-Z-Z-I-E space L-I-V-S. <laughs> okay. 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 Interesting. So that's our that's the finalists. Uh, but we have to pick the winner. Right. Riz, authentic, AI, hallucinate, and cozy lives. Yes. Okay, so cool. What are your uh, first thoughts? <laughs> Well, Any that you can eliminate from the get-go uh, for not liking them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I would be tempted to eliminate authentic because mm. I feel like we definitely are grappling with authenticity in a number of ways, uh, living mm-hmm. online and with social media. But I don't think that that's a particularly 2023 defining feature. Yes, I, I, I'm with you on that. It feels like a, a word that could apply to any of the last 10 years or so. Uh, exactly. And probably for any of the next 10. So mm-hmm. authentic. Sorry, Miriam Webster. You're off the list. <laughs> <laughs> so that leaves about- us with Riz, AI, Hallucinate, and Causey Lives. Causey Lives. Okay. Do you have <laughs> one you'd eliminate Ooh, that we still well, have? I feel like AI and Hallucinate are 
sort of vying for the same spot. Like if we're if we're saying that because I I think hallucinate is um like in reference to uh, AI's hallucinating, right? Oh, Where really? It, yes, yeah. <laughs> the that sort of become the term of art for when ChatGPT lies to you and just like comes up with something that sounds correct but is just uh, made up whole cloth. Uh, that's why that word was chosen. Uh, oh, interesting. Because yeah. I had a totally different interpretation of that. Inter- well, that could be a pro or a con. You know, maybe it does it apply in multiple ways to the year 2023? Yeah, well, the way that I was thinking of is that, like, psychedelics as, like, therapeutic yeah. treatments are, like, kind of gaining, like, more and more legitimacy, I think. There's, like, more studies totally. happening. And um, uh, Benjamin Y. Fong, a writer who wrote a book on the history of drugs in America, mm-hmm. um, having having studied the history, thinks that that halluc- halluc- what's the word I'm looking for? Um, hallucinogenics. Hallucinogenics. Yes, mm. that's like going to be the next paradigm, basically, for treating mental health. Kind of coming out of the like you know chemical imbalance paradigm that was. Right. You yeah, know, made uh, SSRIs and SNRIs uh, very prominent. Interesting. Yeah, I did go to check because there's one book I associate with that idea, um, but it was published in 2018, so uh, not ah. necessarily a 2023 thing in my in my head. <laughs> <laughs> but it does have the two angles. I do feel a bit like AI. Also, I guess that would also affect Kazi lives. It's weird to pick an initialism as your word of the year you know what i mean Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and riz i mean we haven't even talked about riz yet what are you (laughs) riz is are we gonna pick riz (laughs) i think we're gonna pick riz that's what i'm predicting (laughs) okay (laughs) i mean you don't just get to predict you have to you we have to choose (laughs) right 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 okay riz okay Um, well argue for me riz then because it's uh I guess it was probably coined this year. Um, <laughs> it's it's uh, it's short for charisma. Am I right about that? Is that what it, Riz means? It is, and I I'm not mm-hmm. totally sold. You can still convince me otherwise. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. I feel <laughs> like now that we're all branding ourselves online, um, uh-huh. charisma like has gained prominence, and I think you know yep. Riz has such a gen z vibe to it has it. two two z's right in there <laughs> there's two words in it you know and i had mm-hmm. to learn about it through a podcast made by other millennials yep because yep. um, i'm old now <laughs> mm-hmm. so that one like if we're if we want a word that is like a snapshot of the moment yeah i think yeah interesting. i do i do also feel like if oh i wonder I was going to say if 2023 is like if you're reading a history book and they have to condense it down to a paragraph or so, um, I think AI, I was going to say I think AI might get a mention, but then it occurred to me that ChatGPT technically came out in 2022. So if you were talking about like the dawn of generative AI, it might have just missed the mark. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Although it has been obviously a big year for that industry. Yeah, that's true. Mm. It is kind mm. of hard to picture Riz <laughs> being as important <laughs> as the dawn of AI. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's up to us. We have to choose the criteria. No one says it has to be the word you'd find in a history book. 
That's true. Should we talk about Kazi Lives? Kazi Lives. <laughs> I guess off, we should. Adorable. It's very it's it's nice. It's uh <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's <laughs> I've never heard it before. Uh I guess it's Australia centric. Um mm-hmm. but I do feel a kinship with Australia. Are you like that? <laughs> no. I feel like Canada <laughs> and Australia are like a, a pair somehow. Like we're really? up north, they're down south. Both have big land masses, not that many people. <laughs> We extract minerals. I don't know. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, in my head, I, in my head, we're like a, a pair. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I feel like I have a lot of negative stereotypes about Australians, to be honest. Uh, but I also mm. met a couple of really wonderful, amazing Australians at this residency I was at. So, so. they proved they proved me wrong. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and I do. I although I don't think the history book paragraph would include the phrase cause lives it might hmm. have something to say about cost of living because it has been a year of like uh raising interest rates to combat inflation and that sort of thing um yeah like cost totally of living agree. crisis has become like a, a thing everyone's talking about uh around yep. here at least and in australia i guess <laughs> yeah absolutely um i think it is a defining characteristic um of our our current era for sure yeah but yeah again is it like is 2023 going to be like peak kazi lives it might be it, it might, might be. be i mean i hope it is <laughs> I, <laughs> I feel like like with the interest rate stuff it has led to not just renters feeling the crunch but also mortgage holders uh i feel like that the kazi lives has like spread to more of the population through inflation yeah. and interest rates uh so maybe maybe i think it might be Cosy lives Cosy could we could lives. we make it R- rizzy lives <laughs> Cosy riz lives Cosy. <laughs> Cosy live yeah hmm. okay okay well we got to limit <laughs> we've only eliminated one so far what's next on your dropping block <laughs> i think i've got to eliminate hallucinate okay it's gone yeah. See you later, hallucinations. <laughs> Mostly because okay. I'm grumpy about psychedelics, but uh... <laughs> okay. So we're down to three. Mm-hmm. The Oxford English Dictionary's choice Riz, the Collins Dictionary choice AI, or the Macquarie Dictionary choice Cosy Lives. <laughs> oh man! And this, to be clear, to put extra pressure on, this is the beginning of what might be a tradition that goes on the rest of our lives here (laughs) (laughs) this is just the first year this will become the definitive word of the year i'd say by 2040 probably so uh pressure's on we don't want to be like time magazine picking hitler as the person of the year (laughs) (laughs) well thankfully hitler's not on the list so that's not gonna happen um should we like both say it on the count of three and see if we say the same thing oh god that means i have to choose one i guess that was the concept from the start okay well and then what are we doing if we say the same thing it wins if we say different things we eliminate the one neither of us said yeah exactly okay give me give me a second i gotta i gotta pick one yeah me too all right i'm locked in you okay me too okay Okay, ready? One, two, three. Cosy lives. One, Cosy lives. <laughs> did we both say Cosy lives? <laughs> we did. Yeah. 
<laughs> All right, Australia, Sweet. you have made a contribution to the world. Yeah, thank you very Cause much, lives. Australia. Causing uh, lives. Because <laughs> my, my thinking was AI, again, 2022, I feel like, and maybe 2024, but 2023 was like just a, a, a steady improvement year. That doesn't mm-hmm. get you word of the year. Mm-hmm. And Riz... I, I have no opinion on Riz. <laughs> I've said it more in this conversation than I've said it ever before uh, and probably ever will again. <laughs> it's true. And, you know, like I haven't really actually heard anyone say Riz except people being like, Whoa. oh, look at the youngsters with this new word. But yeah. or there's even... been a lot of talk of co- cost of living. <laughs> yeah, or co- Cosy Lives. It's catching on. Cosy Lives. Yeah, exactly. It's our job now to spread it to Canada uh, <laughs> during the remaining couple of days of 2023. Yeah, we're the ambassadors. Yeah. Well, there it is. Our first official word of the year. Congratulations, Causey Lives and Macquarie Dictionary. <laughs> yes. Sweet. Excellent well, job. Of course, the show ends with the most painful part for you, Liam's mm. quiz. Oh, what's this? It's a it's a holiday miracle. There's no quiz this week. Oh my goodness. That's all I wanted for Christmas. Uh. <laughs> Not have to do your quiz. Excellent. Yep. No, you don't you don't get to feel any better about the world this week. Thanks Aww. to numbers. Thanks, Liam. You're very welcome. Amazing. <laughs> no promises about next year. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they'll be back before long. <laughs> Well, I hope everyone out there has a wonderful rest of the holiday season. Um, yeah. yeah. Totally. This and we'll, has been, uh, we'll talk again in the new year. Yeah. Sounds good. This has been Hot Take Think Tank. Until next time.